we, we talk quite a lot about Henry Tudor's supporters on Bosworth Field, which is literally what they were. But the truth is, he didn't really have any people that supported him just for him. There was there was a handful of surviving Lancastrians, the Earl of Oxford, Jasper Tudor, but 99% of his support was from Edward IV men. Um, and so by putting, putting the marriage at risk, it's almost like he's putting his throne at risk. Welcome to Coronation Catastrophes, a Royal History Geeks podcast commemorating the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Henry Tudor was the most unlikely man to ever wear the crown of England. Born to an obscure schism of the beleaguered Lancastrian royal family in 1457, the teenage nobleman fled to the continent and the protection of the Duke of Brittany after the decisive victory of the rival House of York in 1471. As far as most people thought, he would never be seen again. All this changed in 1483, when Yorkist King Edward IV died suddenly and his brother Richard III took the crown that most believed belonged to his nephew Edward V. The young Edward and his brother Richard, known to history as the princes in the tower, soon disappeared. Unable to make their peace with what they judged to be Richard's tyranny, huge numbers of England's ruling class began a desperate search for an alternative candidate to take the throne. Henry Tudor, all of a sudden emerged as the best man for the job. A sprinkle of Lancastrian royal blood trickled through his veins, and with connections to the French royal family, he was well placed to raise an army. More than anything else, he was free to marry the young and beautiful princess, Elizabeth of York, the sister of the princes in the tower, and the woman that many believed to be the true heiress of England. After his ultimate an unlikely victory at Bosworth in August 1485, many expected Henry to quickly marry Princess Elizabeth, restoring the true line to the throne. But, much to the likely horror of the nobility, Henry announced that he was to be crowned alone. The coronation ceremony was hastily rewritten to remove the role of Queen Consort, and much of the political class were likely left wondering if Henry was ever going to come true on his promise. In this episode, we explore the practical, ceremonial and political ramifications of Henry's decisions and speculate about the motivations and factors that shaped his strategy. Hello everyone and welcome to this first episode of Coronation Catastrophes. Now this is a series of Royal History Geeks podcasts commemorating the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. I am Royal Commentator James Taylor and I'm here today with Royal History Geeks creator Gareth Streeter. So hi Gareth, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, thank you James. Uh, no, I'm really good, I'm really good. Um, I am really excited that we're um, sitting down and that we are recording this for those of you of course won't know because um why would you uh, james and i have been talking about doing something together for a while and although we're both busy and although we thought we maybe didn't have time to plan as much as we'd like to with the coronation coming up we knew that we just had to do something 
um, podcasting <laughs> around that it. Word, so podcasting. It's, it's a new word. It's a new <laughs> word. If you look into the dictionary, it won't be there, but that's because the dictionary is not as fast as my brain. Um, which I think we'll agree is 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 a societal detriment. Um, <laughs> but um, here we are um, giving it a go. So we hope that you're all going to enjoy it. Yeah. Now, we should say before we begin that by calling this coronation catastrophes, so we're not suggesting that this coronation will be a catastrophe, nor that it will be beset by a series of catastrophes. It's, it's all going to go well, isn't it? Yeah, I really think it will. I mean, we're, I mean, obviously, there will be, for the people organising the day itself, there will doubtlessly be things that, you know what's like whenever you're organising something, that you think, oh, hang on a minute, I wish um, that didn't go quite as I was in, imagining it to go. But I don't think the outside world will welcome. No, it's going to be a fantastic day. It's going to set up the new reign in style. And the coronation catastrophes, I think, as, as far as you and I have seen it, is just a fun focus that helps unearth some of the stories of coronations gone by and the politics and the dramas and the circumstances uh, that surround them. Yeah, and, and certainly some coronations have been beset by more catastrophes <laughs> than others. Uh, and I'm sure that's something that we'll be looking at. So today we're going to kick off then with the coronation of King Henry VII. And I can't help but think that we're being a little bit dramatic by calling this coronation a catastrophe, because as far as I'm aware, nothing really terrible happened on the day. Well, I can't imagine anyone would either accuse either you or I of being dramatic. Would would they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see the point. I mean, a little bit later on in the series, we're going to look at Victoria. Um, and well, that, that, what... that was a series of <laughs> exactly I mean, that was one yeah. thing after another, wasn't it? But, exactly. Uh, I, won't, I won't give it away now, but yeah. No, no, we'll keep people. We'll keep people holding on till episode four. But yes, you're right in terms of that. Um, this particular coronation, the actual day of Henry VII, as far as we know, there is no major ceremonial catastrophe. Um, I mean, we don't actually have an account of the day itself, which is quite frustrating. But the thing is, it's all very well for us to sit here in 2023 and say it wasn't logistically or ceremonially a catastrophe, but we're not the ones that had to organise it. I mean, coronations, I mean, coronations today take huge amounts of work and they're very significant events coronations then took huge amounts of work and they were even more um significant events the stakes were high and the pressure was on you know a coronation sets the tone for the whole reign the people involved um you know, almost seal the destinies or may have been perceived to seal the destinies of the people that are going to be influencers in that reign and you know when you i just sort of have in my mind's eye a group of heralds and a group of, of churchmen and a group of people that would be in courtiers responsible for doing this thing or oh, jeepers henry's just one we've got another coronation we've got to organize and then someone optimistic chap saying no don't worry don't worry guys guys calm down calm down we only did this for richard iii a couple of years ago we wrote it all down which they did we know exactly what to do it's going to be absolutely fine and then in the last minute, well, I say it's last minute, we don't know exactly when it was they realised, but as preparations were well underway, they found out, actually, Henry's not going to be married. You know, there's going to be no queen. You cut the leading lady out of the ceremony, and actually in doing so, you cut half the cast out of the ceremony. That's big. Yeah, and and I suppose as well, the other thing to, to say there is that, you know, you're saying that they it would have been a you know, great 
we must organise it now. You've you just said that not only did they have uh, Richard's coronation as a template, but of course coronations happened much quicker after the accession in those days. Much um, quicker. You know, I mean, now it's, I know this has been nine months. Um, well, no, it's slightly longer than nine months, hasn't it, since the, since the Queen died. Um, but, you know, her coronation was 18 months after her father's death you know there's a longer gap now whereas in those days it was it was much quicker uh, and I suppose the spectacle because they didn't have mass media the spectacle had to be there and so once that person was crowned that meant that they were legitimate and I suppose in in Henry's case uh, that was particularly important but um, but just going back to the removal of the queen that doesn't just take away the one person because it, it eliminates the female presence from the ceremony mm. altogether doesn't it yeah, no, it does. And the thing um, which we've got to remember as people that watch the coronation now or any not just a coronation, but a royal wedding or we might watch a uh, even the funeral that we had of the Queen or I mean, we don't watch baptisms of of royal babies, but we see the pictures after all well, these are lovely, happy days. The funeral obviously is not a happy day, but in, it's still seen as a ceremonious occasion and it's almost you know a little bit celebby in terms of who walks in where in but but these were about far more than that because they were a public presentation of the power structures of the realm so to be able to get if you're a leading statesman nobleman member of the gentry to be able to take part in the role or to arrange for one of your kin one of your family to take part in the role helps build up your own presence within the new regime if you're a lord or a landowner your power in your locality yes it comes partly perhaps largely from your landed base but it also comes from the from the perception of how close you are to the crown and therefore how influential you can be in matters of local policy so the more your you can get your family in there it's a big deal when you cut out the female cast, because if you've got no queen, you don't need the female attendants. You don't need the members of the queen's household taking part in it. You literally cut out the opportunities primarily for women, but for men and women to take part. And you disenfranchise some of the people that you probably should want to be including and take away their opportunity to, to showboat the fact that they're important and they're significant. And that had political ramifications for for henry um in in making his decision not to do that and um why he did remains a little bit of a mystery and just going back to to richard's coronation which is only a few years earlier you would it would have been um bigger spectacle because you'd have had uh, anne uh, as crowned as queen so not only would she have had attendance on her but also there would have been members of her household. So there have been Chamberlains, uh, the, you know, and all of the great household appointments, which would have been both male and uh, female. Um, but you would also have had the uh, the peeresses there, which yep. if it's, um, if it's uh, a queen consort being crowned, the, uh, if it, well, both king and queen are being crowned together, then you, the, um, the peers would wear their coronets and shout, God save the king at the moment of the king's crowning. If, if the queen is then crowned, queen consort is crowned, then all the peeresses would put on their coronets and shout, God save the queen at the moment of the queen's crowning. But if it's, um, but if it's only a, a king, those female attendants aren't there. Whereas if it was a, a queen regnant, then both the peers and the peeresses would put their coronets on the same moment and shout, God save the queen. So it's, it's significant, not only in terms of 
the number of uh, people being cut in who would attend mm. the ceremony, but also the people who would have influence would be in, in attendance on the Queen, uh, because there are only so many uh, positions in the King's household. And I'm not suggesting that to be a member of the Queen's household is necessarily a constellation prize, but it does mean that there are far more members of the gentry who would be included. And so by cutting that, you not only do you remove that, you remove those opportunities uh, for people to have those positions in the household anyway, but also to be seen in splendour at the coronation. But you also cut significantly the number of people that would be attending uh, as well. So that would that would you have do. an impact. You do. And it's not just, it, it's also a real missed opportunity because it means that Henry doesn't have the chance to make a statement that he, many would be expecting him to make. So were if Elizabeth were being crowned with him, you would expect a bigger role for her family. Um, and that is politically very important because Henry, as we, we were saying, and maybe we should talk a bit more, just remind people of, of the background to this, but Henry wins the throne primarily because of the support of the people closest to the, to, to Edward IV, and therefore his affinity being inherited by his daughter Elizabeth and all their family. Had the the people that had won the crown for Henry would have been expecting these people to play a high-profile role in the coronation because we don't have that account of it. We don't know how people like Elizabeth's brother, the Marquess of Dorset, we don't know what kind of role he played, but we can assume that his uh, Elizabeth's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, would not have have played a particularly significant role because what role could, could she have played in these circumstances? Princess Cecily, Elizabeth's sister. It is significant, I think, perhaps, that some... 18 months, not even quite 18 months, just over a year later, it's these people that play a very significant role in Prince Arthur's christening, the first son of Henry and Elizabeth. Um, we see, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Woodville, not Henry's own mother, being the godmother. Princess Cecily is very high profile. Princess Catherine is very high profile. The Marquess of Dorset and his wife are high profile. So whether that's some compensation for something the House of York um, missed out on, uh, in the coronation, I don't know. But for people, they must have just been slightly petrified that an agreement that was made 18 months ago about Henry marrying Elizabeth York now risks not being honoured at all. And I suppose it's an opportune moment to remind ourselves of, of how we got to this point. So uh, very, very briefly, and in a nutshell, uh, Richard III seizes, or is given, depending on your point of view, uh, the throne in, <laughs> in 1483. Um, and loyal supporters of, of Edward IV can't handle this overthrow and the probable murder of Edward's sons, uh, the princes in the tower. And so they desperately want to find a candidate to challenge him. And it's at this moment that Henry's mother, the ever canny Lady Margaret Beaufort, the Countess of Richmond, she sees, sensed an opportunity for her son and she reached out uh, to the now disgraced Dowager Queen, Elizabeth Woodville, and proposed that Henry marry Elizabeth of York. And that would join together the warring houses of York and Lancaster and would essentially bring to an end finally and once and for all the, the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So the plot to marry Henry to Elizabeth, which was forged by their mothers, is seen as as a, as a solution to, to, well, an immediate political crisis dressed up as the solution to a long-term 
political crisis. I mean, Henry, it doesn't go too well to start with because Henry and um, Elizabeth are pledged in marriage to one another. And probably Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort set about organising quite a strategic, well-thought-through rebellion. Circumstances mean they probably have to join that to Buckingham's more premature and less thought-through rebellion quite early on earlier than they were really ready to go and it's basically an aborted coup it doesn't work it's not successful but it does manage to establish henry as a credible candidate to the throne and from that point on edward the fourth men continue to join henry in in his exile first in Brittany and later in france um and and eventually they managed as we know to come back um sometime later and and make a more credible attempt for the throne and actually win in battle but it's funny because we we talk quite a lot about henry tudor's supporters on bosworth field which is literally what they were but the truth is he didn't really have any people that supported him just for him there was there was a handful of surviving lancastrians the earl of oxford jasper tudor but 99 percent of his support was from edward the fourth men and um, and so by putting putting the marriage at risk it's almost like he's putting his throne at risk so why why would he take such a risk? I mean, what what would be his possible motive for that? So do you go by the theory that it was his way of showing that he had won the crown by conquest and that he was undisputed as king because he had won in battle rather than being king by marriage? Uh, because I suppose people might have assumed that he was merely a king consort because they would have seen Elizabeth as the eldest surviving, well, she was their eldest daughter anyway but you know and she was older than her brothers but by being the the souls of the uh, the premier heir to the to the house of york or um because if he'd been crowned with elizabeth there'd be no hiding that fact that he was crowned because of her um, but by being crowned alone was that the way to make him look king you know un undeniably the king himself um and king alone that's certainly the most common theory. Um, and it, I mean, it's it's kind of at the, the far end of the spectrum of one of the theories. I mean, I suppose most people <clears throat> accept that people don't do anything necessarily for one sole reason. There's always a bit of mixed motivation. But I think certainly people would would point, would would generally interpret his 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 delay in marrying Elizabeth as being about exactly what you've just outlined this was not the crown matrimonial as far as he was concerned which which if, it, if that's the case that's slightly extreme of henry because in it, he wouldn't have been king consort in the sense that elizabeth was queen and he was just the consort it, he would have by the common law of england he would have assumed if, if Elizabeth had just been a landed heiress, he would have assumed her land upon marriage and the power over that land. So the assumption would have been that he would have, he would have assumed authority. So he'd still have had that authority. But yes, certainly that emphasis on, no, 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 I won this crown in battle. I am not just here by right of my wife. I mean, surely was at least part of, of, of the explanation for his delay. On the other hand, there are those that argue he just didn't have any choice um, about the delay so just to go back to richard the third's the dark days of richard the third just to get a few comments going in the comment section i am actually a member of the richard the third society not many people know that um probably many people don't care because even though i do think richard was a pretty awful king to be honest he probably did most of the things that people said he did 
I do think the society does some excellent research and, and I thought it'd be interesting to learn more about it. But anyway, that's by the by. But yes, yeah, so back in the, the dark or glorious days of Richard III, however you want to look at it, he's, he decided that Elizabeth and her siblings were all illegitimate because it turns out their parents hadn't really been married. And um, he had an act put through Parliament um, which declared, which enshrined their illegitimacy, which is really a church matter, not really a parliamentary matter, but enshrined it in law. And meant they weren't able to inherit property or inherit the throne and all those things that, that happens to poor illegitimate children. So you could argue that because her legal status was was one of a bastard, there was no point in Henry marrying her straight after Bosworth Field, you know, sort of getting, you know, going, get picking himself up at the field, having a shower, putting his you know suit on and, and heading down to the chapel and her in a white dress. But there would be no point in that because she she wasn't at the moment legally a princess of england she was the bastard child of of edward the fourth um so the theory when you look at it going sort of this end of, of the theory would be well you've got to get parliament first of all to reverse the status of um uh, of elizabeth and her mother and her siblings well to call a parliament you've got to have a crown king to have a crown king you've got to have a coronation so you could argue that rather than taking a very stingy view of what Henry did, he was putting things in their logical order. Plus, you know, they were cousins, so they did have to wait for papal dispensation to come through. Now, that does sound a bit generous on Henry, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably does. I mean, I do, because I think... I mean, Henry. When you say, "Oh, well, he had to, he had to follow due process, and there were laws," so like, yes and no. I, I mean, I'm not saying I don't think there was any consideration, but Henry himself was barred from the throne. He didn't stop him seizing it. And if you look at Henry the usurpation of Richard the Second, again, they found ways around that. They did manage to call a parliament, even though there's no. I mean, they sort of did the name of Richard the Second, but I think if he'd really wanted to marry her early on. These barriers were overcomable. Maybe well, I suppose, different... as well, Sorry, I suppose as well, you'd say that you know possession is nine tenths of the law, and if he was sat <laughs> at the throne, then even if he you know didn't have that by you know by uh, the parliament and whatever, I, he could probably have got round it. He, well, he could because there are examples of when oh, is there really a king to call a parliament where the lords will spontaneously all get together in a general council and plead with henry to come and take the throne and you know all the all this sort of stuff so we've seen these sorts of acts of theater before so i think they are i mean a law's a piece of paper and henry had the support of the political communities i think it would have been overcome but i mean maybe the dispensation was a bit trickier but actually he didn't have the full dispensation when he did actually get married so again i'm not entirely sure um that that we can we can go to other also i mean in that first parliament before he married elizabeth they passed a succession act um that left the throne to his descendants not his and elizabeth's descendants his descendants you know he was making a point i mean I he would have I, if he'd had a child and this might be one of the reasons he never marries after elizabeth of york's death but if he had a child with anyone other than elizabeth of york except maybe one of her sisters i don't think that child would ever have had a chance of holding the throne so and I expect he knew that. So again, I said it's it's theatre and it's probably a refusal to accept it's the crown matrimonial. I think I think he was making a point. But I mean 
I mean, I guess the question, sorry, I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking, I'm sort of, it's like I've been absorbed back into 1485 and I'm there <laughs> watching. I'm, I'm one of the gentry watching this display in Parliament. But I think, you know, it was the question is, was this all just a piece of theatre or was he actually that, that, ever serious about going it alone? I'd be surprised because whatever he was, Henry wasn't a fool and he must have known full well that those supporters which had followed him at Bosworth only wanted, uh, their primary motivation was because they were Edward IV's men, uh, they were supporting Elizabeth um, and so by risking that and by taking it much longer then surely he would have risked losing their support uh, and they could have you know, they could have caused rebellion in Elizabeth's name or in, in somebody else's name. Um, you know, if the if the you know if the issue was not wanting a woman, you know, another another sidestep there. But you know, if they could have found another heir and uh, called rebellion in in his name potentially, just because you know if they didn't trust Henry, and that would have been a greater risk for him to have gone it alone and got you know and decided he was never going to marry her. Well, exactly. And the last thing he'd want to do would leave leave Elizabeth of York free to marry someone else, because then that chap would be... I mean, Henry was a great candidate to marry Elizabeth because he did at least have that trickle of Lancastrian royal blood, but it was a trickle. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, in November of that parliament, there's a moment where the Commons, the Commons are always sent to petition things to, to petition the king for things he wants for well to do anyway but the commons are sort of sent into bit oh elizabeth's lovely go on oh go on marry her she's a lovely girl you know she should make it oh she'd make a lovely wife you know your parents will love her um he only had one parent alive who obviously already knew her um and that staged you know petitions from the commons not always but generally speaking the commons went in and asked begged pleaded with the king to do things that he wanted to do yeah yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that, you know, those, those, as you're saying, you know, those whole petitions are all moments of theatre, aren't they? In, in the same way that you would see particularly uh, queen consorts begging and uh, for mercy for, you know, for men who had been either attainted or sentenced to death and, and the king would graciously uh, accept that and that their sentence would be commuted. And it was all, it, that was again, all a piece of theatre, wasn't it? It was all set up in advance. The king was always going to do that. Uh, and it was just a, a convenient way of getting, getting them to do it. Now, let's just look a bit further into some of these more colourful theories. So in the um, in the, the controversial White Queen uh, TV series and book, uh, the delay is rather more sinister because uh, before sealing the date with Elizabeth, the argument is that Henry wanted to check that she was fertile. Uh, and so he finally married her in January 1486. And there was a baby um, only eight months later. So was it was that the reason that he waited to make an honest woman out of her? I'd be very surprised. I, I think um, it's a good, I, I mean, I really enjoy, I'd say I enjoyed the White Princess book and TV show. Um, and I thought they did actually capture Elizabeth and Henry's relationship quite well. Not the first bit. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, so I've, I've written a book on, on Prince Arthur there, Henry and Elizabeth's son. Um, and I was able in my mind, so there's a, th I mean, even if you don't go quite with the sensationalist white princess, um, theory of, oh, he was seeing if she was fertile and then decided to make an honest woman of her. There are people that point out that from that, from the moment in the parliament in November, where he pledges formally to marry her from that point on, she's referred to as queen. Um, so 
from that, technically speaking, from that point on, had they slept together, it probably canonically would have been okay to count as marriage. Um, but it still could have been, it still could have been a bit dicey. I think it's far better. Uh, I think as far, I think the evidence more firmly suggests that Arthur's born about a month premature, um, which we, we can't prove that, but the, the evidence is, is kind of leaning in that direction. So when Elizabeth goes into confinement, she goes into confinement in Winchester where she has him. I mean, just people probably listening know this, but uh, a woman before giving birth withdrew into an all female world where she could just be cared for by her women. Husband was allowed in um, I'm women of the highest rank, not, not, you know, Queens effectively uh, where they were, were just completely able to focus on bringing bringing the child to term and be looked after elizabeth's confinement with arthur was shorter than her later confinements and given it was her first pregnancy and you thought there'd be more caution than anything else um that probably suggests he came a bit more promptly than they were expecting um there seems to be a little bit of caution about moving him too far too quickly when he was born and his cor- his his coronation he never had one sadly his uh, christening seems to be organized in a bit of a rush one of the key players the earl of oxford is meant to be his godfather arrives late he arrives halfway through it, having sort of rushed down to make it and you know that's not the sort of ceremony you're going to treat with any casualness you know he was probably expecting to be there a few weeks or a few weeks later so i think that's all suggests arthur came a bit early and i think just the chances of henry and elizabeth risking any questions around the legitimacy of the future heir are pretty minimal. Um, I mean, yes, you you could argue, and people would have seen it as once they engaged and slept together, they were married, so their child would be legitimate. But 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 they just seen what happened to Elizabeth and her own brothers in terms of Richard the Third or his supporters or or what you know, however you want to say it, retroactively saying a marriage was invalid. So for there to be any question mark whatsoever just doesn't seem to fit the circumstances or their characters. I mean, I think the chances are Elizabeth just fell pregnant straight away. Maybe, maybe on a wedding night, Arthur might've been a wedding night conception and that he was born um, a few, a few weeks, a few weeks premature. Um, And eventually Elizabeth, of course, then, you know, eventually she does get her own um, coronation. So, what the the wrong, if you like, that was done to her originally does it does eventually get corrected, mm. and and just to go back very briefly onto that, uh, you know, to the issue of uh, the the white princess and the what was um, you know had had the baby already been conceived, um, it would of course have been very difficult in those days on a practical level to have been able to to have been sure enough at that stage to have then got married because um, wasn't the, the you know, it was only known you know because firstly it was very difficult to be able to judge if a woman was indeed with child or not uh, and wasn't it only at the you know the quickening of the child when the te deum would be sung and that that uh, that it would be formally known beyond doubt and that it would be sort of announced and recognized so i mean that would be you know if they got married only a month after Arthur were conceived, you know, if, if you believe he was born at term, then surely there would still be another approximately three months before you would know beyond doubt um, that she was expecting. So I, that, that to me, that, that, that theory just goes a little bit too much against the grain uh, for it to really be plausible. Well, I think that's all the reasons why it's a perfectly legitimate thing to have in a fiction book. 
<laughs> but probably shouldn't be taken too seriously as a theory. And I'm not I'm not in any way suggesting that you or I are particularly well qualified to talk about exactly when a woman knows she's pregnant as well. But it should be said Elizabeth was young as well. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, clearly had never been pregnant before. So there's no track record of her even knowing what it's like for her, you know, kind of thing to informally say, oh, I think I'm I'm pregnant now but um anyway i'm sure i'm sure not very many people would value my my speculation over um detecting pregnancy um very highly but i think you're absolutely right i think for a number of reasons it was it, it, that theory can be dismissed as good fun for a book but not a lot yes. more than that and and i would agree i mean my my qualifications for uh discussing uh pregnancy are, are no greater but what i would say is that um even with my limited knowledge of it, uh, I could see that it would be far more difficult in the 15th century than it would be today to be able to ascertain, and certainly at, at an early stage. I think um, we're on safe ground with that. Yes, yes, I think so. So just uh, looking at Elizabeth's coronation then, in what way does that differ from Henry's? Because, of course, we, you know, we've already had Henry's coronation. So when she comes to be crowned in 1487, um, we have... A similar ceremony, but of course, one which is which is in every in every way as splendid, but also more curtailed. Because uh, let's face it, she is the queen consort, not uh, not a queen regnant, uh, and so there were we would we would say fewer uh, attendants on her than there would have been had it been uh, a joint coronation. Uh, but nevertheless, we do see her family pe- uh, play much you know bigger and more prominent parts in her coronation um uh, but there was quite a delay so why was this i mean was it was it simply because of uh, of arthur her pregnancy and, and arthur's birth or is there more into it is it that it happened at uh, the time of the simnel conspiracy is it, is it to do with that yeah big question do you think do you think people know what the simnel conspiracy was some might not i suppose no uh no very good point so after henry uh becomes king there's around a year in uh, and people start making noises that the young earl of warwick uh the queen's cousin um who was uh, the son of the duke of clarence and um the elder sister indeed of uh Count of salisbury who comes to prominence later and uh, certainly in henry VIII's reign Um, that he has uh, escaped to Ireland uh, to raise an army uh, and a little boy who is posing as Simnel invades uh, but the men of England stay loyal to the Tudors and they quickly repel the Irish uh, during a battle at Stokefield in Nottinghamshire but uh, the theory goes that Henry realises that he's alienated his Yorkist affinity too much and therefore he decides to crown his wife at that moment to try and bring the Yorkist back on side. Oh, very good summary. Very good summary. We could, um, we could, we could, um, we should, we should do a Tudor podcast next. That was, <laughs> the, the, I mean, yeah, that is so the theory from that is that basically Henry comes on in. Don't he? Don't make much use of Elizabeth beyond the basics in terms of um, providing his heir. He realizes that with the backlash against him so soon. I mean, the rumbling start from about a year to thirteen, fourteen months of him taking the throne, and then the you know that culminates in sort of spring of of, of fourteen eighty seven with with the Battle of Stoke. 
Um, and then he thinks, right, Jeepers, maybe it's time to give the Queen and, and her Yorkist friends a bit more airtime. Um, and that actually, I mean, say it's a theory, it's not just the sort of modern speculation. Francis Bacon, who was the earliest and probably the best, in some ways, biographer of Henry VII, who was writing just 120 years after it, he speculates that. And he, he is worth taking seriously because... He was closer to it, so he would have understood a lot more, but just about the context. I mean, let's let's face it, he he would have known when he was young, he'd have known old people that remembered Henry VII. Not necessarily the Battle of Stoke, but mm. you know, he's he connects back to all far far more easily than we do. And he almost certainly had access to sources that we've lost. So whenever whenever Bacon is our earliest source even when he's um, 120 years after the event, it's still it's still really, really valuable. However, in this situation, I don't think he's right. Um, I don't think it's as straightforward as Henry wasn't going to bother with the coronation for Elizabeth. Um, but then after Stoke, he thought, oh, jeepers, you know, better give a bit of, better give the Yorkists some love. Because there is evidence that their preparations were in train for the coronation um as early really as as soon as the marriage happened in in january 1486 and there's he's splashing a bit of cash getting stuff ready for the queen's coronation um but then all of a sudden it just disappears and th there don't seem to be any more preparations being made and we don't ever know why um but it's probably simply bit what you were saying um james about when elizabeth might have known that um the child was quickening within her it's probably simply that she realized she was pregnant and they didn't want to risk a huge event like that uh with with all of that going on um i so i i mean pregnancy i should just say and the reason i'm hesitating is because of course anne boleyn was famously yes. in the next century crowned visibly pregnant so i'm not saying pregnancy well vis visibly or not visibly i mean you know they, they talk about the whole folds of her robes hiding her yeah. state but yes yeah and, there's, there's very little point. hiding it yeah i mean she yes yeah. so i guess what i'm saying is pregnancy doesn't have to be a bar people weren't squeamish about pregnancy then you know is that that you know, and what a shame that they saw yeah. a woman's role as this limiting. But that was the role of the Queen was to, was to create an heir for England. So it's not a squeamish thing. But we know Elizabeth had pretty awful pregnancies, yeah. so she was probably ill early on, and they probably didn't want to put her through or the child through it. That would be my best guess. Yeah, because they certainly weren't as squeamish as they, you know, that that came in sort of with the Victorian period, wasn't it? With women having to withdraw and not be seen for, you know, once they got past a certain stage and it was going to be visible. Um, so you think then that Elizabeth's coronation and the timing of it in particular had nothing or very little to do with a similar incident? It, I don't know if I go that far. I mean, it could well be that. I mean, Elizabeth was ill after Arthur was born. We don't know how long for, but she was ill after Arthur was born. So it could be that just after the birth wasn't a good time either. And it could just be that this was the first credible time when she was well enough to do it. But it could also be that the similar instant did influence um, the timings. I mean, ultimately, in, in a sense, 
Elizabeth's coronation kind of closes the loop on Henry's own coronation catastrophe. If it was a catastrophe, whether inevitable or not, whether necessary or not, to infuriate the Yorkists by not involving Elizabeth in a more prominent way, by not honouring that marriage commitment straight away, then it could be, um, and then he did have repercussions, Yeah, by giving Elizabeth such a splendid coronation. I mean, it's such a shame that the, the account of Henry VII's coronation doesn't survive. And it's unusual as well, because Henry VII cared about preserving history. He commissions a lot of history. And most of the early big events of his court are really well chronicled in really amazing detail, including Elizabeth's coronation. But we can't compare it to Henry's because his doesn't exist, which is really frustrating. But it's big. You know, whether how it compares to Henry's, we don't know, but it's big. It's a big day. And it's 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 pushed for maximum visibility. So I think it could well have been at that scale, perhaps at that grandeur, to kind of show Elizabeth's involvement and and close the loop on on his own maybe initial mistake, if you see it as a mistake, to just describe himself as this all-conquering Tudor king. And um, of course, the other thing to say is that the, the Simnel conspiracy was sort of brought to a, a, a close because, uh, of course, the real Earl of Warwick was paraded through the streets and taken to St Paul's and, and all of that. Uh, so there was, there was that had you, you were able to show that the real person is there. So Simnel was definitely was definitely not the real um, was not the real Earl of Warwick. Was just an impostor. Well, well, I think it's Virgil that talks about um, how even that was not enough for the diseased minds <laughs> of the the Yorkists. The, Virgil, that they're, they're not not always impartial, but probably not as biased as people make him out to be. Uh, writer of history, I think. Yeah, he they is lucky that Henry did have um, the uh, the real Earl of Warwick in his possession because mm. that presumably stopped any counter riots or anyone while he was off at Stoke dealing with the army that stopped any rebellions in London sort of uh, creeping up and, and and pulling the rug from under his feet. Um, but but that's the other thing I really delved into. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent now, but I'm allowed to because that's what people love tangents, don't they? And is that one another thing is how scared they were during the Seminole um, um, crisis. And actually, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth Henry and Margaret Beaufort, Henry's um, uh, mother, gather in the Midlands for an emergency summit. We don't know what they discussed, but thereafter, Elizabeth, the Queen, heads straight to Arthur. And it looks like preparations were in place to evacuate the Queen and the Prince to the continent to set up probably to keep him alive and to set up a rival court. Henry knew full well about rival courts on the continent. And I think that's interesting that although they've been married only just over a year, there's already enough trust in Elizabeth to handle and 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 protect the future of the Tudor dynasty. Of course, it's her dynasty as well now. But even with all this sort of Yorkist opposition, a house that Elizabeth associated with, the couple were already close enough to be able to completely trust each other with something like that. And I think Elizabeth's coronation was a celebration, at least to some extent, of Henry's love for his own wife. And I don't think it was just politically motivated, though it's Tudor times. So how do you ever separate love and politics? True, and um, but just just going back to you were saying about the Earl of Warwick and, and being able to produce the real. It, it always reminds me now how true it is. I don't know, but we've talked about the White Princess a little bit earlier. It always reminds me of you know when the BBC did um, the Shadow of the Tower 
series mm. in the 70s uh, and it shows it shows these events and it shows um you know the earl of the real earl of warwick the, the child being taken um to parade through the streets and then uh, you know when he gets back to the tower they take off all his fine his coronet and his you know his fine robes and everything uh, and then they put him into because he's been until this stage he's been in sort of fairly comfortable lodgings he's taken to to what is essentially a prison cell shown to be a prison cell although let's face it it was made in the 70s so it does look as though it's made out of cardboard and you know mm -hmm. and then he starts banging on the door saying i'm the earl of warwick let me out and, and it does look as though it's there's an earthquake happening um but it i that image is is always in my mind and and just on that that series well i i think that that series does get the captures the essence of um henry and elizabeth's characters at this time really well because you have elizabeth knowing that she's the heir uh saying you know i am elizabeth of york and she says this several times to cecily and then they're talking about uh, henry after he's uh, taken the throne at bosworth and she's saying oh he'll have to come a wooing you know as and i may not give my consent and then it becomes clear uh, that he's going to be crowned without her and then suddenly she you know she's much less cocky she's much less sure of herself um and then it it is it does appear to be you know a, a political settlement to their marriage but then you know as as the time progressed and the episode got it, it is shown to be you know, um, if not necessarily a love match, certainly a partnership and, and a, a, an equal partnership between yeah. the two of them. Well, as equal as it can be with, you know, he's the king. But, you know, there's there's mutual love and affection and trust between them. Um, you know, I mean, there is we can all assess and judge how accurate these dramas are. But I think that that sort of captures that. Mm. That's the, the best one that I've ever seen capture the essence of, of their characters. Mm. Um, and, and because, of course, they're, they're far... Uh, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York are far less uh, no, well known, certainly as the mm. as the the other Tudors later, and so I think that um, I think that they're ripe for. You know, there's more speculation about how they might may or may not have felt about each other because we don't we don't we simply don't have as much information as we do in the later later Tudor period. No, no, we don't, which I think is probably both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it. I guess when you're talking about, and I get asked quite a lot, you know, because um, I write a lot about Henry VII stuff, and I often get asked, were Henry VII and Elizabeth of York really in love? Probably because of, to an extent, shows like, um, that, like, what, what, oh, I forgot the name, what's the show you were just talking about? Dad of the Tower. Dad of the Tower. But of course, more recently, probably because of the white queen, white princess stuff. And of course, the, you know, the the point I always make is, you can't really know how well your best friends feel about one another. You know, if you're friends with a couple, you don't truly know what's going on in their hearts. And you know, we've all been in that situation where a couple have broken up and no one knew there were even any problems. So, how on earth can you really say what a couple who lived five hundred years ago, who you never met, felt about each other? And of course, you can't. But I agree with you that there's a partnership um, and that it's a partnership that seems more than a begrudging one, if that mm. makes sense. Um, and like I was saying earlier, that evidence, because I think people have always known that it became that later on, or there's evidence it did. But again, writing about Arthur, I realized, no, it's there. It's there in the first 18 months of their marriage. You know, Henry's not sending... Henry's not sending his mother 
with Arthur to the continent to establish a rival court. He's not sending his uncle. You know, he's not sending the Earl of Oxford. Now, arguably, of course, she'd send the mother with the boy. But that's a huge position of trust. I should say, I mean, we don't know for a fact that that's exactly what the plan was, but it seems to be what the plan was, piecing it together. So please, uh, people listening, don't quote me that we know 100% that's what the plan was, but it seems likely. And then you see, of course, years later, Arthur's death. Obviously, I'm looking at this through the prism of Arthur because I've just written about him. But when Arthur dies, there's a very detailed Herald account of their reaction. It's emotional. It's moving. It's personal. And Elizabeth comforts Henry by saying, we are still young enough to have more children, which you could look at as quite cold, but I don't think that's the right way to look at it at all. It's about trying to put you best put forward and she later goes into her chamber then completely collapses she comforts him then she goes away and can finally grieve as a mother but when she says to him we can have more children she knows what she is saying which is that she will put her life at risk because having a child is a risk for any woman in the early 16th century she's had terrible pregnancies And it looks as if the couple had made a deliberate decision to start having children in recent years because her last one seems to have been particularly hard on her. So she knows she's in her getting into her late 30s. Which of course isn't, you know, even though she says we're still young, that's not young by Tudor standards. It's it's still relatively young by today's standards, but by Tudor standards, that's quite old. She means it's possible, you know, she's not. and, And she knows the risk and it's huge. Now, Yes, that's a dynastic commitment. and But just the fact that she's thrown her whole self into what, you know, what I call Project Tudor, you know, this new dynasty for England, that in of itself is telling. But to think that there's not a human aspect to that, I think, would be to deliberately take a cold hermeneutic on the available sources, shall we say. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing to, to say about Elizabeth and her character is that even though there is that Yorkist support and it never entirely dies away, there will always be certain sections who are who are sympathetic to, to the Yorkist cause, who accept Henry begrudgingly. She never does anything to court their support. She never does anything to act outside the king's interest, outside the king's sphere of influence. She she doesn't try and attract attention mm of herself um she doesn't you know she doesn't she she's um i suppose one you know if one were being cold-hearted about it one would say that she uh becomes entirely supplicant to her husband but i'm not sure that it is entirely that i think it's more likely that it's that she realizes that that although yes there would be some power it would it would throw the whole nation into disarray she's lived through Mm. rebellion and, and war and she probably doesn't want to see all of that again. You know, it's more—it's more of a real politic rather than rather than necessarily. You know, she's having to um, to mm. become entirely, you know, to to lose her own character or anything like that. I, I think you're spot on. I mean, she would have grown up with stories about this horrific evil queen Margaret of Anjou, who was waiting in France to come back and ruin their their reign, their home, their stability. And she would have heard about she was a terrible woman because she dominated her husband and all the rest of it. <laughs> a historian would would know that Margaret had, of Anjou had no choice not to <laughs> other than to dominate her husband because he was entirely inactive. Um, and then she would have seen to a less extreme extent, but still to a very real extent, 
her mother's own more dominant style of of queenship which she may have we don't know she may have attributed to part of the problems with what went wrong and that led to the destruction of her brothers she may have done because it was it was a reluctance to see her mother's family take power that caused Richard to get some early political support, Richard III I'm talking about. So Elizabeth's heard these horror stories. She's seen a style from her mother that she may have questions about, although maybe she doesn't. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if she just thinks this isn't the way to get the kind of stability that we want. And of course, it's, I mean, I, I know we can only speculate because the sources aren't necessarily complete, but um, the relationship between Elizabeth and her mother at this stage, it, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, they, you know, they're in contact. And even after Elizabeth leaves court, you know, she's not, she doesn't cut off ties with her, but they don't seem to be particularly close. She doesn't seem to model herself on her mother and her mother's style. Well, she um, definitely doesn't model herself no. on her mother. No. And it doesn't appear that they, that they are especially close later on. Um, you know, they, they are in contact. Then she's not Elizabeth Woodville isn't cut off completely, but it's um it, it's it seems far from a close relationship. Yeah, I mean I kind of agree with you. I mean, I think I think we don't know. Um and and we may just it may just be the impression that we get. And it may be, I mean, of course, why does why does Elizabeth Woodville get cut off? Well, it's so that the king can give her money to his wife so because the first you know year or so of elizabeth's queenship she doesn't have a she doesn't have a proper entitlement and she can't really because her mother's got it and as we know henry was was famously fiscally conservative shall we say so whether there was even any resentment that you know elizabeth the older elizabeth felt the younger had taken we just we just don't know i mean what uh, I mean, Elizabeth probably had no choice in any of these decisions. And uh, it doesn't seem like that. She doesn't seem to have played any real political role at all as queen. And we just do not know whether that's because she wasn't allowed to, or she didn't want to, or, or both. Um, you know, it's, but it was probably a sensible decision. But I guess the only thing I'd say is, She's not a passive figure, despite all of that. As I say, it's her going to her husband after Arthur's death saying, we can do this. You know, we can, um, we can, we can have another go. We can keep this dream alive. Mm. And in, again, looking at the negotiations, which obviously I studied in detail around Arthur's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, they use Elizabeth. She's a secret weapon. She's brought out to charm the ambassadors when they're unsure about England and win them over. And she stages a mock quarrel with her husband about which one of them gets to keep the letters from the Spanish king and queen, letters they couldn't even read. You know, they're a very well-oiled partnership. And Elizabeth's active in it. It's not this, I'm just in the background, having no say and being silenced. Yeah. And and on I suppose on the issue of Elizabeth Woodville, um, I suppose as well, if you have a queen consort and you also have the king's mother, a queen dowager is, you know, it, it's one, it's another expense, but it's also another figure. It's perhaps one too many. And I'm not suggesting that either Elizabeth nor um, her mother-in-law deliberately plotted to get rid of her necessarily. Uh, but um, I think, you know, you've already got enough female leaders at court without 
without her as well. And she was also she was always a divisive figure, even during her husband's time as well. You've still got Cecily, Duchess of York, around. Don't forget for the early part of the race. Yes, yes. And and she's not doing a lot. But what I thought was quite interesting when again I was going through the records in quite a bit of detail when I was writing my book and. I think the f- three times in the first 18 months of the king's reign, he has to intervene to protect Cecily's landed, um, Cecily, Duchess of York's landed interest. And he's obviously, he's obviously happy to do that, but he will have known from his mother and from his uncle and from others that Henry the sixth kingship, who they all revered as a saint, but I want, but revering him as a saint was probably a clever way of not drawing attention to his qualities as a king. But one of the big problems with his regime is how much patronage and land and wealth had flown to the centre and around a few cronies close to the royal family. Now, I'm not saying that's what motivated him to think and be fiscally prudent with members of his wife's family, but I suspect he did rightly recognised that monarchy needed to be solvent and efficient for some of those reasons and lots of hangers-on in the royal family certainly didn't help matters no no i mean that would that would certainly have complicated things and and certainly you know there are too many competing voices for the king's attention Mm. and and to and for prominence and preeminence at court uh and so having you know a slimmed down monarchy, which we hear a lot of at the moment, <laughs> it does have its advantages in terms of not only does it mean that you can have that fiscal prudence, but it also means that there are not too many people competing either for the king's ear nor for popularity among n- not just the commons, but I mean even just among the nobility. Mm, yeah. You're you're not. But then again, I suppose the risk is, as we were saying earlier, that the fewer. Uh, leading members uh, of the royal family, leading members at court, means that there are then fewer positions for those members of the aristocracy. And then you get the the disaffected members of the aristocracy who become slightly less loyal. not saying that they would necessarily want mm. to stage rebellions or anything like that, but they, they're not at court regularly. They're not necessarily involved mm. in court ceremony, court ritual. So they become more disaffected, a m- bit more uh, disinterested in all of that yeah. so they're not then so then during the bad times they're not necessarily there for you to call on their their loyalty and their support so it is a fine balancing act well i think i think that's quite an important point because i think it becomes quite clear to henry quite early on that elizabeth woodfill he's someone he can get rid of without causing much grief she doesn't seem to have supporters and i if, if, if historians have different views on this mm. but the earliest accounts of her banishment suggest it was at the insistence or the request of senior senior people near Henry, and it doesn't come from him. As we were saying earlier, it's quite easy to get people to request you to do something you want to do, <laughs> um, and there might be a bit of that in it. But it does. There are obviously Elizabeth Woodfall had always been unpopular. Arguably, she made herself very unpopular with former Edward IV supporters when she she didn't have a choice, but she sort of united with Richard III after the first rebellion, yes. Buckingham's Rebellion flops. And arguably some never forgive her for that. And it's sort of a popular thing to do to get rid of Elizabeth Woodville. It's quite it's quite hard to know whether that's true, but it's 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 certainly a credible interpretation of the events of 1487. And so yes, then that creates more space for other people to be able to do other things. Of course, because Elizabeth dies, 
1491, which is quite relatively soon after. We don't really know what her longer term role would have been at court. It's quite it's quite hard to say. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but I suppose it is fair to say that her support had mainly been among her family and her, and her older supporters anyway. She wasn't necessarily as widely, didn't have the, uh, the support among the wider nobility that um, that we see in, in other members of the family. Uh, yeah, I've never done a I've never done a huge study on Elizabeth Woodville's personal affinity, but I think that's true. I think any support she had would have been captured by Elizabeth of York at any rate, and she probably didn't bring an awful lot more to the political table in that sense. No, and so we, you know, just to to go back, we have now, you know, Elizabeth's now been crowned as well as as Henry, and so does that in in essence then square the circle? Does that mean that all of the the questions around the legitimacy and and all of that are over, and he's now the great conquering hero <laughs> for for about eighteen months? Um, yeah, Henry, I mean, as, as we famously know, and this is conversation for a different time, Henry's never rests very securely on his throne. He faces a much more serious threat to it. Or what would have felt like a much more serious threat to it in the 1490s in the form of of the of Perkin Warbeck? So it's not exactly all over, but I do think it closes the loop. Those concerns that were opened by his coronation catastrophe of you know cut the consort which is what this episode is called any fears that that does open probably do get largely satisfied with the crowning of elizabeth of york so his problem begins the coronation and it probably is cured by one okay well in curing that that probably seems a, a good time to draw all this to a close <laughs> It has. Well, I hope everybody is very excited about listening to episode two. We shall announce details. Um, but what should people do if they want to comment on this wonderful episode? Uh, well, do drop us a comment on social media. Please let us know what you think. Uh, we do. We will read them. All of them. We promise. Both of um, them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no. So please let us know what you think and look out for episode two of Coronation Catastrophes, which will be coming very soon.